Welcome to the Reconcile Community Church podcast. We hope and pray that the resources that will be shared on here would be a blessing to you. If you want more information or to support our church financially as we do the work in the beautiful Queen City of Cincinnati, Ohio, you can find more information about that at www.reconcilecincy.org. Be blessed. I know many of us have enjoyed the moment as we close out our time together uh, for the little Woodard kids to be able to lead us in a time of prayer uh, as we finish up our, our, our time together praying, thanking God for uh, all that he has done. And so, uh, as always, little ones, we're gonna, you're going to lead us in the Lord's Prayer, okay? So, Brooklyn, you lead them, and then y'all repeat after Bra- Brooklyn, okay? Okay, make sure y'all loud so everybody can hear you, okay? All right, ready? One, two, three. Our Father, who are in heaven, who are in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom come. I will be done. Thy will be done. On earth. On earth. As it is in heaven. As it is in heaven. Give us, give, this, give us this day. Give us this day. Our daily bread. Our daily bread. And give for, us. Forgive us of our trespasses. Forgive us of our trespasses as we forgive those as we forgive those who trespassed against us. Who trespassed against us. Lead us not into temptation. Lead us not into temptation. But deliver us from evil. But deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom. For thine is the kingdom. And the power. The power. And the glory. And the glory. Forever, forever and ever. Forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Everybody. <laughs> Y'all can go sit down over there by Nini. Thankful for uh, the water kids being able to lead us in a time of prayer. I think it's important for us uh, at times to be reminded of this reality and this truth uh, that the Lord does hear our prayers, that he responds uh, to our prayers, and we are thankful that the Lord hears and responds at the same time. Amen. We are continuing on in our sermon series entitled The Last Dance. Uh, the last dance. Uh, we this is part five, uh, and so I would encourage you if you have not heard, um, if you have not heard all of the first four uh, parts, uh, I would encourage you to check those things out. Especially for those of you who are online, we are we find ourselves in the second chapter of Second Timothy. We've been walking through the book of Second Timothy, and uh, we find ourselves in Second Timothy chapter one, verses one through thirteen. One through thirteen. It says this in the word of God. Hear now the word. It says this. You, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in the concerns of civilian life. He seeks to please the commanding officer. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer ought to, uh, ought to be the first to get a, crop, a share of the crops. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead and descended, uh, and descended from David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer to the point of being bound like a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. This is why I endure all things for the elect, 
so that they are able, so that they may attain salvation, which is in Jesus with eternal glory. This saying is trustworthy for if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot, he cannot deny himself. The very word of God. Amen. And amen. Mentorship is a crucial, mentorship is crucial in developing, stop uh, banging your foot, Brandon, uh, developing, in, uh, developing people into the people they want to become. There's something about someone more seasoned than us coming alongside of us to help us grow. Mentorship is absolutely vital. In fact, if you were to look at some of the most important people in society, one of the things that you'll know is that they all had some degree of a mentor. Mentors help you grow. One of the best things that a mentor can do is share helpful advice and keep the mentee focused on the main thing uh, that they are striving to become or to accomplish. Because this is true. A mentee doesn't know what they don't know. And because of this, there is this easy opportunity for them to become scatterbrained and become busy, but unproductive. All throughout my pastoral you know, journey, I've had multiple different mentors. And there have been multiple different moments in the life of my pastoral ministry where my mentors have stepped in in crucial moments to help keep me on course. Because there's been always the allure for me to go off on tangents and to make things on the, on the periphery important when really the thing that is important is right in the center. And so I can remember some of the pastoral advice and some of the focusing conversations and sayings that some of my mentors would say. Things like this. One, one mentor told me early on, this was about eight or nine years ago. He said, Brandon, focus on pastoring the people, not on the bells and whistles. I can remember that because I can remember early on in my pastoral journey, I thought I needed to be the coolest pastor in the world. Like, that's what I needed to be, was the coolest pastor. I needed to be able to have all of the nice outfits on. I needed to make sure I had the smoke machine. I was focusing on everything else than pastoring people. I didn't like what he had said, but it was necessary for me. I remember one mentor told me this, make sure when you say yes, Brandon, you are comfortable with the simultaneous no's that you are agreeing to as well. He used to tell me, Brandon, whenever you say yes to something, you're saying no to everything else. And when he said that, he was sharing that in the context of me making decisions to go and be a part of certain things or to be a part of certain boards or to take certain trips or to speak in certain places without consulting or considering the ramifications on my family. I can remember that piece of advice. It wasn't necessarily like the best, you know, thing that I wanted to grasp in that moment, but it was necessary to keep me focused. I can remember one of my mentors telling me, Brandon, slowness is a superpower. You are not in a rush. I remember early on in the pursuits, I remember, man, I thought that everything needed to happen right away. I got to have this, I got to have this, and I got to have this. And I can remember being on the edge of burnout. And it was a mentor. Focus my attention. What's more important? Slowness is a superpower. You can get more things done if you move slower. I remember, you know, this one piffy saying that a mentor told me, you are called to pastor people, Brandon, not entertain them. 
Now, I remember this because there was a moment where I was feeling the pressure of being a people pleaser and simultaneously a pastor. And he was like, these two things can't really coexist. You have to be able to pastor people, which means that there are going to be moments and times where you're going to have to say really hard things to the people that you love. And it's not that you are doing this to be angry with them, but you're doing this because you are their pastor. And so I remember these things. And in the same way, we find ourselves in this particular passage of Scripture this morning, and Paul is doing the same thing with Timothy. Remember, 2 Timothy is really a book of encouragement for Timothy. Timothy was, was dealing with discouragement uh, from various different forms and ways and manners. He, he was struggling with the call to pastor and the next steps that it would take. And he knew simultaneously that Paul was sitting in a jail cell probably about to die. And he was dealing with these uncertainties. And there was this, this reality where he found himself pastoring a church in Ephesus that was, that was surrounded by a society who did not care about the things of God, who, who had all of these different things that were literally uh, banging against the church, that were causing people to leave their faith, to leave the church. There was false teaching come in. There was so much going on that, that Timothy at, at, at some point could have become scatterbrained. And as a loving mentor, giving trusted advice to a friend, this is where we find ourselves in this particular passage of Scripture. It's almost as if Paul knows this, and he pauses in chapter 2 to say, you know what, I need to make sure you understand some stuff. There's some crucial things you as a pastor in the Lord's church that, Timothy, you need to make sure you understand if you were to, to boil down this particular passage of Scripture, here is the big idea that Paul reminds Timothy of the critical importance of being focused on the work God has for him and not the noise of his day. Like, like you're going to see this as he's talking. There seems to be this laser-like focus that he has. He's trying to get him to focus on the main thing. And in a lot of ways, for many of us, we need this same word of advice today. Because there's so much happening. You turn on the news and you're seeing a caricature of what the church is supposed to be. You see another caricature in other aspects. I mean, we're seeing so many things shocking for people's attention. There's the rise of people literally leaving their for various reasons. But I think it's because there's so much noise around us and we are trying to figure out what is true. What's the guiding light? What anchors us? What should we be focused on when there's so much that's happening? I think Paul's words of encouragement to Timothy, a pastor, are applicable for us as followers of Jesus Christ. There are three things that, that Paul wants Timothy to focus on that I think is important for us today. And they're very simple. In a lot of ways, if you've been tracking with Reconciled Community Church, you've heard a lot of this stuff, so I'm not going to go spend a lot of time in it because you've heard this before. And as I've already shared with you, repetition is key. One of the things that is necessary for us to get to a level of mastery is repetition. The first thing that Paul tells Timothy is that there's this the reminder, make disciples. Look at the text with me again. In verses 1 through 3 in chapter 2, he says this, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Like this is, this is 
critical and important what uh, Paul was sharing with him. He's telling Timothy in a lot of ways, hey, remember that it is important for you to make disciples. I know that we're hoping that there will be something more expansive and something more deep, right? But, but this is very critical to the, the idea of uh, Timothy being a pastor. He needed to make disciples, just like you and I are called to make disciples. In fact, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, which is, you know, what we know as the Great Commission says this. Jesus came near and said to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is. The, the, the precipice of making disciples. This is the calling card. This is what we're called to do. And it's interesting that, that Jesus is telling this to the disciples who will go on to be the pillars of the early church. This was a mandate that was given to them, that's given to us. Which, if you look at it, is really just a repackaging of Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. Bless them, and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply the earth, and subdue it. This is nothing new, that we are called to make disciples. And he's saying, in the midst of all of the noise, Timothy, I need you to focus on making disciples. This is important for you. Pastor in the Lord's church, you need to make sure that there is a downline of individuals who are growing in their faith and then sharing that faith with others and helping build them up. But what is a disciple? A disciple is simply a follower of Jesus. I tell people, think you are a forever student in the class of Jesus. You are literally just learning who he is and learning how to imitate him in your life. You're in a class that you never get out of. And to help us become better disciples, enter this idea of discipleship. I think this word discipleship has gotten hijacked because in a lot of ways we think discipleship is a class you take, but it's really a lifestyle that you live. But to make this more simple for us, discipleship is really, um, can really be seen as apprenticeship. Kristen is a midwife. She went through an apprenticeship style of training where her preceptor named Wantina took her under her wing, and Kristen had to learn midwifery by being with Wantina and learning along the way. Wantina's a few steps ahead of her. And so as Kristen would have to sit at her feet to learn how to birth children, she would learn from formal teaching at times, but in a lot of ways from being in her presence and watching how Wantina would deal with certain births. As Dawson Trotman once said, most things are caught, not taught. That you can learn a lot by being in the presence of someone. I learned what it meant to be a good husband by just sitting and watching my stepdad. I learned how to become a good preacher by sitting and watching Pastor Brian Loritz preach. Now, were there things and moments where there were formal teaching that shaped those gifts? Sure. But a lot of the things that I learned along the way came by me being with them. And the idea of making disciples is not supposed to be this super complicated thing. Literally what it is is that you are saying in a lot of follow me and follow Christ. 
members of Reconciled, I've heard me say this. You don't have to have a biblical theology degree to make disciples. All you need to be is one step ahead of the person that you are calling to imitate you. You see, because disciple making reminds us that we are a part of a bigger story, that our faith is deeply communal, that it's not just about you, yourself, and Jesus, but you are a part of a bigger story. And disciple making pushes you into that narrative to remind you that you play a part that's bigger than you. And this idea of disciple making has happened all throughout the scriptures. Can I give you a few examples? Moses had Joshua. It's interesting, whenever you saw Moses move, they may not always say it, but when they did, he was right there with them. When he went up on the side of the mountain, it's interesting because Moses went to the top, but there was somebody kind of halfway there watching what was happening, and that was Joshua. That there was whenever, and it's interesting, Moses never got to the promised land, but it was Joshua who would take him through. Throughout the, uh, the, the prophets, you have the famous example of Elijah and Elisha. Elisha learned what it meant to be a prophet of God from watching Elijah. And there was this moment where Elijah gets called up and Elisha is still present. Who's to carry on the work? Elisha. It's this beautiful rendition, this beautiful opportunity for us to see the importance of disciple making. That it shouldn't just stop with you. But then, of course, we have Jesus and his disciples. The most famous example of this. Jesus comes and lives and does ministry for three years and then he leaves. But we are sitting here today because the disciples were commissioned by him. When he went up, the ministry didn't stop. They carried it on. You see, we all speak of making an impact. And one of the best ways that we can do this is through disciple making because you never know who God will use that you've invested your life into. You have no idea. I've shared this illustration before, but I think it bears repeating. Phil Cook did an uh, uh, interview with a guy named Nicholas Bindu. And Time Magazine at that point had done this deal on Nicholas Bindu. They said that he was the Billy Graham in Africa. This guy was, had seen, he, had, he was the reason that so many people had come to know Jesus in Africa. They say that he had brought more people to Jesus uh, in one time uh, in Africa than, than any other person, saying he's literally the modern-day Billy Graham in Africa. And Phil Cook got to inter interview this guy. He was about 70 at the time of this interview. And uh, he, he sat down with them, and he, his first question was, man, man, how does it feel to be known as the Billy Graham of Africa. And he tells this story, true story. He says, Nicholas Bindu looks up at him, smiles, and he says, I'm not going to answer that question, but I want to tell you a different story. I want to tell you a story about this missionary couple that came over to Africa many years before. This missionary couple had come. They felt led to go and minister into Africa and said that they had found themselves in this particular area. Uh, the mission board that they were with didn't necessarily want them to go to this aspect of where Africa in Africa, but they just felt called to it. And so this missionary family goes and they're very faithful in this place. They are doing everything they can to share the good news with these people in this particular town. But every time they did anything, no one showed up. They would start, they built a church, no one came to it. They had programming, no one came to. 
In fact, they got to a point where over years they got discouraged in sending the reports back over stateside because it wasn't really much ministry that they could say was happening. There was no spiritual return on investment. The only thing that Nicholas Bindu said was the only person that would come would be this little boy who would literally carry the equipment with them. And he would just carry the equipment. That would be the only person. It got to a point where the, the missionary organization decided that it was time for this missionary couple to come back stateside because they felt like they were abjunct failures. They had wasted their money with this couple going over to Africa and ministering this part of town. And Nicholas Bindu said that, man, this couple was so dejected that when they left this town, the only person that came to see them off was this little boy. He said those that couple came back stateside and a few years later they ended up dying. And they probably died thinking that they were a failure. And Nicholas Bindu looks over at Phil Cook and he says, it's interesting because they were not a failure. Because they thought they were supposed to go and reach thousands. But God didn't want them to reach thousands. He didn't want them to reach hundreds or tens. He wanted them to reach one. And he looked over at him and said, that little boy that followed them around, that was me. And he said, and I have literally shared the gospel with more people in Africa than anyone else. It shares with us the importance of disciple making. You have no idea who it could be that God wants you to impact. For you to say, follow me as I follow Christ. You don't know what that impact may be. You may be in glory by the time you get to see the impact of a person's life. But God calls us to make disciples. And so the first thing that he tells them, make disciples. But then secondly, Paul tells him to clear out the noise. He says, clear out the noise. Look at the text in verse number three. He, he says this. In three through seven, he says this. Share in the sufferings soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a good soldier gets entangled in the concerns of civilian life. He seeks to please the commanding officer. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he is not crowned unless he completes, a, he competes according to the rules. Just hang on to that part. Verse 6, the hardworking farmer ought to be uh, the first to get a share of the crops. Consider what I'm saying, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. It's interesting because now Paul gives him three pictures of things. He gives him a picture of a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. And when we look at them on his face, it wouldn't seem like it makes sense. Like, why these three? This just seems random. But when you think about it within its context, that Timothy is literally facing all of this stuff that's coming about, especially as the attacks are coming on the church. People are leaving the church for false teaching. There are false teachers creeping into the church. There are prominent leaders who are leaving the church. Like he's dealing with so much noise. There's so much going on that you can see that there's, in some kind of way, Timothy is faltering. He, he's, he's getting hit and he's starting to he's starting to take those body blows that are causing him to 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 drift side to side. And when you think about this, now consider what Paul was sharing with him. Now, there's a lot I could have preached on just all three of these and made a whole sermon over the soldier, the athlete and the farmer. But for simplicity's sake, I just want you to consider what these may mean. The soldier. He, he says this in a particular passage that's interesting. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in the concerns of civilian life. He seeks to please the commanding officer. Any person in the armed forces knows this. Your job is to do exactly. 
what the commanding officer tells you to do. Nothing else, nothing more. You have a singular focus on an audience of one. You serve of the audience of one. This is what your focus should be on. The marching orders are those. There are no additions. There are no one else that you should be trying to consider to get marching orders. He's saying there should be a singular focus on what you should be doing. So he says you need to serve an audience of one. He then says the athlete, which is interesting uh, because when he said this, I got PTSD. I, I remember what this means to be an athlete. As a former athlete myself, I can remember what he's, I can understand what he's getting at. When he says, no one wins unless they're competing according to the rules. You can't cheat. Integrity matters. He's saying there's going to be discipline. There's going to be this opportunity for sacrifice and suffering. But he says, in order for you to reach and get the crown, you have to walk in a specific manner. So this athlete has to embrace discipline and sacrifice and suffering. But then the farmer, it's interesting. Because the farmer, in a lot of ways, uh, has to practice this idea of delayed gratification. That there's going to be this moment where there's going to be a lot of work that happens. The reward will come, but it's going to take some time. The promise is that they will be able to get a uh, receive and to be able to enjoy the reward of the crop being grown. But what is inherently baked into this is that there is going to be a time where there's going to be sacrifice and work, but there's going to have to be a space between that. And the farmer knows that a reward is coming, but they got to be faithful to what it is that they're doing now. All of these are reminders for the believer to stay focused because some of the lies that they were hearing and being tempted would have made them believe the direct opposite and put them in direct opposition to the word of God and the work of God. So consider, what is Paul trying to ward off for Timothy when he says, I need you to serve an audience of one? The enemy would want nothing more than for you to replace the you being the Lord with yourself or someone else. He wants you to focus your gaze on something else. That's the lie. This is what Paul is trying to ward Timothy. Up. Don't get entangled with other stuff that don't matter. Like focus on the one who you are supposed to serve. You don't serve all of these other things. The audience is with the Lord. This is the whole story of the Old Testament. The Israelites had a problem with their gaze. They could not understand which audience they were supposed to be living for. That's the whole Old Testament. God is like, focus on me. You focus on me like we, good in the, we all good in the game. But they just could not figure out this idea of focusing in on who God is and what it was. They were hustling backwards, as they say. And it's frustrating to read the Old Testament because the people of God had everything and nothing at the same time because they failed to focus on the Lord. And then on our, on our day, we've we got to consider this. It's easy to consume ourselves and our lives with everything else besides the Lord. Sometimes we would not outwardly say this, but our actions would dictate that sometimes we forget that he even exists. Because our focus is not on an audience of one, it's on a focus on an audience of everything else. 
That's why there's this old uh, Latin phrase called solo de la, de la gloria, for his glory alone, that we focus on him. But then the athlete embraces discipline, sacrifice, suffering in order to achieve a crown. Paul is telling Timothy that there was there is a way that you are called to live about in this pastoral life. And honestly, it can put um, it can be put out to our lives as well. Holiness matters and imitating Christ matters as well. We cannot tell the world we follow Christ and simultaneously live any type of way and think that's OK. There's validity in how we walk. This is why he uses the illustration of an athlete. We love the athletes who keep their nose clean and win. That's why everybody is back and forth about the baseball uh, home run record. Because some people would say that it's Barry Bonds, and there are some people who are saying that it's Aaron Judge. But why, are they, why is there a discrepancy? Well, we know the elephant in the room is steroids. But that whole juxtaposition is based on this same premise. Integrity matters. There's something about going about this the right way. And for brothers and sisters who, who have been following after the Lord, I know that there's this, this, this tendency to believe that Jesus is our homeboy, that there's this reality that we've been forgiven, God knows our hearts, that we can live some type of way because we are forgiven. That's licentious thinking. And, and Paul would say, don't live like that. Sometimes the biggest hindrance for other people to respond to the gospel is us. <laughs> because we don't think that there's a value in living with Christ-like integrity. Paul made this mention of this. He says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24 through 27. He's addressing the Corinthian church, which is a whole nother sermon series in and of itself people who were insanely gifted, but were extremely trifling at the same time. And there were just walking oxymorons. Like they were, they could speak in tongues and have all of these gifts in the church, but then they had a guy sleeping with his mother-in-law. It was just like, it was a mess in the church. And Paul uses countless illustrations to remind them of the importance of living with holiness. He says, don't you know that the runners in a stadium all race, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way to win the prize. Now, everyone who competes exercises self-control in everything. They do it to receive a perishable crown, but we an imperishable crown. So I do not run like one who runs aimlessly or box like one beating the air. Instead, I discipline which is gymnazo, where we get the English word gymnasium, the idea of discipline, my body, and bring it under strict control so that after preaching to others, I myself will not be disqualified. It is the reality that we are called to live holy. It matters. And obviously, there must have been something that was happening around this time that would cause Paul to have to share this with Timothy, that you cannot live any type of way. There is a, you're going to have to live a certain type of way, and it matters. But then he says, the farmer. We live in a, micro, uh, uh, in a society that's built on microwave expectations. We want everything right now. We expect that, man, if we do this, then out comes the blessing right now. Like, we, we want things right now. But I love that Paul uses this idea of a garden and a farmer. 
Because one of the things that you know about farming is that it takes time. It takes time for crops to grow. You'll get a harvest, but a lot of time you're just waiting. You don't know what's in that dirt. What you do know is that you have to trust that in the future there will be an opportunity to receive it. Paul is reminding Timothy of a truth that I believe we don't like hearing these days because it gets a bad rap. And that's that we will receive a reward in heaven for walking with the Lord. Like this is something that, man, we don't like this because we want our blessings now, people say. One of the big drawbacks from, you know, that I hear from people who are kind of weary of Christianity is that y'all are so heavenly minded that y'all are no earthly good. Y'all are always concerned about what's to come and not necessarily worried about what's here and now. I can understand the sentiments, but then I disagree at the same time. That there is something about the farmer who will receive the crop, that there is a benefit there, but we may not get it right away. But there is a promise that there will be something that we get. You see, back in the day, especially in a black church, this is what kept them going in the midst of oppression. Jim Crow and all of these other things. It's the reason why Dr. King could stand boldly and declare that we will get to the mountaintop knowing that he would not make it there. It's the reason why so many uh, before us could go on and do so much because they were reminded of this truth. That there's a crown. That's coming. That there are better days on the horizon. Colossians chapter three, verses one through four, remind, uh, remind us of this. That it's important for us to have a heavenly gaze, like a farmer knowing that the crop will come. But the delayed gratification is necessary. It's a mark of Christian maturity. So if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who has appeared, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Our heavenly focus should dictate how we go about living on this earth. The future promise that we will be with him and be able to experience the reward of following Christ should shape how we live here and now. I love movies. There's a movie called Den of Thieves. I'm not sure if anybody has seen it. Have you seen Den of Thieves? You seen Den of Thieves? You seen Den of Thieves? It's a good movie with O'Shea Jackson. It's a really good movie. It's really good. Uh, I'm going to give it away because it's super old. And so sorry in advance for those who watching and those in the room. Um, the whole onset of the movie is that these robbers uh, come together to, uh, to create this. They want to they want to um, uh, 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 perform heist. And according to the movie, you know, they get the group together um, and they perform heist. But it seems like it goes awry quickly. Like it was just a hot mess towards the end. Seems like one guy got away. And it's like, dag, I don't think that this was the way that this was supposed to go. Well, one of the main characters that we didn't know was a main character, but we end up finding out in the last 10 minutes of the movie was O'Shea Jackson's character. And they go back from his perspective. And one of the things that's interesting, what you note, is that he knew all along how he wanted this heist to go. 
And from that way, from that finished perspective, he began working backwards to make sure that that reality came to pass. And so he made sure that he was in the right place at the right time. He made sure that he would uh, talk to the right people to influence them in such a way to get this person on the job, to make sure this would happen because he knew the future reality. He knew that he wanted to walk away with all of the money. And so with that future picture, he went backwards and lived accordingly. And so in the last five minutes, we watch backwards what he had already seen. And it makes sense that he was able to perform this thing because he had a future picture that he was living based off of. And this is the reality that you and I can live with as he's talking about this. If we are focused on the main thing, if we're focused on what Christ has called us to, we will be reminded that in the end of time, he went like he wins. We know the end of the story. And because we know the end of the story, we know how we should navigate this life right now. There are going to be noise all around us, but if we are focused on who he is, what he's done, then it helps us to better navigate where we are right now. But then third and finally, we see this. He said, remember the anchor of your faith. In a lot of ways, the last part of this particular passage of scripture, Paul goes on a riff to tell us about who Jesus is. It's like he's grabbing Timothy by the lapels. He said, look, man, I told you to make disciples. I told you to clear out the noise, but listen, remember who Jesus is. He is the anchor of your faith. It's the reason, Jesus is the reason why Paul says, man, I'm in chains and I'm okay with that because I want to make sure that people know who Jesus is. And I love what he says about this. He says, and because of the power of God demonstrated through Jesus and the gospel message, he says, man, I know for a fact that even though they got me in chains, they don't never chain the word of God. And we know this to be true because Paul would go on to be killed But, man, the gospel would proliferate all throughout Rome, and in a lot of ways, it crippled the Roman Empire. The word of God can't be chained. But it's interesting that he reminds us that Jesus is the only way of salvation for those who are elect. We shared this in a lot of ways, that Jesus is the anchor of our, he's the cornerstone of our faith. And he goes on this rift, this poem of redemption, of of redemption of who Jesus is, that he died for you and I, that he would raise so that we could live, that he would preserve us because of the work of Christ and dwelling uh, in the dwelling of the Holy Spirit. He shows his authority that Jesus advocates for us uh, all throughout the scriptures. We see him advocating, but he also has the ability to deny those who deny him. And that his love is everlasting that he's more present to us than at times we can be to ourselves. He wants them to understand who Jesus is. Because as a pastor in the Lord's church, you ain't anchored on sermons. You ain't anchored on anything else but Christ. On the solid rock I stand, all other things, other grounds are sinking sand. He wants them to know who Jesus is. That he's the one who was born into poverty Yet wise men brought riches to the lowliness of his cradle. That he was the one born a helpless baby, yet spoke spinning worlds into existence. The mighty pillars of the universe by his own word. That he's the one who was cradled in someone else's crib, who sailed in someone else's boat, who ate at someone else's house, who rode on someone else's animal, and who was buried in someone else's tomb. And yet unto him belong all the unsearchable riches and glory. 
That he's the one who, as an infant, frightened the king, as a boy who confused the scholars, as a man who calmed raging seas to make them steal. He's the one who wrote no books, yet libraries can't contain the amount of books written in his name. He's the one who wrote no music, yet the noblest geniuses of melody bring their talents and lay it at his feet. He's the one who Herod couldn't kill, who Satan couldn't seduce, who sin couldn't stand, the roaring sea couldn't withstand, sinners couldn't resist, and the grave couldn't hold them. As the old black church say, he's Adam's redeemer. He's Abel's vindicator. He's Noah's ark. He's Abraham's bush on fire. I mean, he's Abraham's sacrifice. He's Moses' bush on fire. He's Joshua's battle axe. He's Gideon's fleece. He's Samson's power. He's David's music. He's Solomon's wisdom. He's Jeremiah's balm in Gilead. He's Ezekiel's will in the middle of a will. He's Matthew's king. He's Matthew's Mark's suffering servant. He's Luke's great physician. And he's John's word made flesh. That he is God's son, the sinner's savior, and the captive's ransom. Brothers and sisters, our faith is anchored in Jesus. Nothing else, nothing else can make sense. He gives satisfaction that we all long for. We trust in the risen Savior who died for us, his life for hours in a beautiful exchange that literally would flip the world upside down. And in the midst of the noise of life, Paul's words of wisdom whisper to us to stay focused on Christ and the work that he has for us to do, because it's indeed worthwhile. Let's go before the Lord and let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for this opportunity to be reminded of just who the Son is, the Messiah who anchors our souls. We're thankful for the that Paul gave to Timothy as they serve as encouraging words for us here today. Lord, I pray now that you would uh, be with us and remind us of these realities and these truths when we find ourselves wrestling with our focus, when we find our hearts uh, drifting, prone to wonder. Lord, I pray that you would remind us the importance of making disciples, that you would remind us of the importance of focusing in on you, that we are an audience of one. Lord, I'm praying that in all things we would be anchored in you. Lord, we thank you for these opportunities and these moments to be uh, reminded of these truths and allow these to permeate our hearts and lives that we would leave this place empowered and encouraged to be able to continue to stand for you wherever you've called us to be. In your son's name we pray and give thanks. Amen and amen. I'll, I'll share this because um, I know it was, I was praying more people would be in person, but I know that there are a lot of people who are watching online. Um, so I, I want to make sure that uh, I give deference to uh, to what has to be shared. Uh, so I'm going to read some things because, honestly, I don't know if I'll be able to get through this, but uh, I wanted you all to come together because I, in a lot of ways, I think that there's it's important for me uh, to be I practice vulnerability and honesty, and so I want to make sure that I'm able to share uh, some things with you um, just as a point of, of vulnerability. Um, so um, when I was younger, one of the, my favorite games was Mike Tyson's Punch-Out. Anybody remember this game? Um, Mike Tyson's Punch-Out. Uh, anyone with a Nintendo growing up remembers the wonders of this game. It was such a, it was 
so much fun to play as Little Mac, this ready upstart pro trying to become a champion. Of course, you know the final boss is Mike Tyson himself. I don't know how many people actually got to the end of it. I got to the end of it, and I could never defeat Mike Tyson. He moved too fast. He was really big. Uh, but it's an awesome game. And uh, I, I love the game because I love Little Mac's heart. He would get the snot beat out of him, but he would always be able to get back up off the mat. And at times, you know, he would surprise you with these super uh, knockout punches. However, when Little Mac got tired from throwing so many punches, you could see the fatigue set in. He would not be able to block. And you can remember this in the game. He would turn red, like this pink. His arms would grow down, and you're able to knock him out. And if you were not careful, no matter how hard, how much heart he had, he simply could not get back up. And you would have to start the entire process over in the journey again. In a lot of ways, the journey with church, uh, with planting Reconcile reminds me of Little Mac, a church plant trying to beat the odds to become a sustaining life-giving church in a historic African-American community riddled with its fair share of hardships. From our inception, we had a heart and saw some amazing victories. We were able to serve our community in countless ways. We began the uns we uh, became the unsung heroes behind the scenes that was super rewarding. And we built trust with the persons of peace in our community. And we were afforded seats at the community table, which uh, to this day are amazing. Early on, one of our church advisors who's here with me today would tell me uh, that we have stories that other churches dreamed of. A community was formed of people in love with God from various walks of life. And we saw people get married. We sent couples out. <laughs> Ministers get licensed. Men and women get empowered and people trusting in Jesus. And literally, we baptize people uh, around the city and the state, which is really cool. And all of these things, I've been blown away and extremely grateful. Words cannot express how much these moments have fueled me to continue to lead this beautiful church. God has done and is doing a good thing here, and I am so thankful to have been a part of this journey. With all of the good, however, there have been many knockdowns. Early on in our church, we moved to Lincoln Heights after being in Pleasant Ridge. There was the pain of that season really like kicked knocked the wind out of us as a church. We lost a ton of people, a lot of finances, but we weathered the storm. We got up off the canvas, bloody, but our heads were unbowed. Shout out to my fraternity for that. In a community seen as tough, it meant that we were facing an uphill battle funding-wise. Knowing this, you know, if you know me, I've worked two extra jobs to try to make this work. But when one of the jobs ended earlier this year, it put a stress on the church financially to try and cover expenses that we simply could not. Uh, of course, we are thankful for last gifts that have been a blessing, but sustainability hasn't even been a word that we could consider. And on top of this, partners we thought would support us didn't, and, you know, the well of churches that we went to got dry. Opportunities for me as a bivocational bi or at times a trivocational pastor were just not realistic, um, and this uh, blow kept us on the canvas for a while. But... We have tried to stagger back to keep fighting. Planting a church is hard, but planting one in a pandemic is even harder. We all had to face new realities, but this one had caused the hardest hit to our church. And honestly, personally to me, COVID closed our doors for a while and forced many of our fragile uh, base to move out of Cincinnati to find uh, work in other places. 
And though although we've tried our very best to invite others into gatherings, into our spaces, it's been sparse at best. Although we are thankful for those who come, such low turnout has a way of having negative effects on the pastor's psyche. And if I'm honest, Sundays are joy and they can be hard. Because on one end, I'm excited to gather with the body. But the reality is that I'm not sure who will show. Most of the time, it's a handful of us. And that's hard, if I'm honest. The knockdowns we face, we always seem to bounce back. But if I'm honest, as the past church, I feel like little Mac kind of tired and punched out. I've given... Reconcile all my all and the knockdowns have forced, you know, have that we face to hurt uh, to the point that personally, I don't think I have it in me to get back off of the canvas anymore. Um, I've tried so hard, but it's at this point where I'm realizing that uh, me getting back up to try to rally this church again may actually cause damage to my family and I. And so recently, um, earlier this year, I was at a pastors and wives retreat in, in the Hilton Head, spending time celebrating and reflecting on our church's experiences. And on the last night, a pastor, uh, after hearing an update on our church and all of the plates that were spinning, asked me a question that still haunts me to this day. And he said, do you think that you can keep this up? It haunted me because I knew the answer that I've shied away from for a while, and that's that I can't. And so because of this hard truth, I've come to the realization that Reconcile Community Church won't be able to go on past this year. I, I never thought I would write this sentence. I never thought that I would be here. But... Um, It's this time where I know that it's appropriate and this is an appropriate place for me to do it. It's not that we have failed, but on December 4th, we would have finished the season that God had for us. And I'm thankful for all of y'all who have been here in person, um, people online. Like it has been an honor to have been able to serve in this capacity as your pastor. And I appreciate it and I'm thankful for tr you all trusting me with tears and laughs. I'm thankful for being invited in to your families, to be able to celebrate the highs and the lows. This week I've been blown away by all of the words of encouragement from all of the members, you know, your unwavering support. And because of all of you, we were able to, by God's grace, to create something special. And so what does this look like for us in the coming, the coming weeks? As I said before, our final Sunday will be December 4th. Um, and then I can't really tell you what happens after that for my family and I. We're still trying to decide that. But I do know that the Lord has been like rest and recover. I know on December 3rd, we'll try to plan if the funds are there to try to plan to mark a moment on December 3rd, that Saturday. And then one of the last things that we would all throughout the rest of this time that we're together, um, we want to be able to capture the stories of how this church has been beneficial for all of you. If the church has benefited you in any type of way, 
we want to be able to capture those stories, uh, if you're online or if you're in person, to be able to remember this moment, to make, as I've always told you, an altar of remembrance, that we can look back, and even though this church may not exist, we can still say, look what the Lord has done. And so I want to bring up uh, one of our advisors, uh, Kurt Hanna, um, because I don't think I can close out our service together uh, right now. But I would just ask that he would come and just pray for us as a church and um, and just close out our time uh, together. If you don't mind, I'm going to share just a brief word. I know it's dangerous when you hand a pastor a microphone. <laughs> um, there's a text that came to mind when um, I thought about this. I've been a part of the advisory team for a couple of years now, and I, I, I want to share um, there aren't a lot of pastors I admire in the same fashion that I admire Brandon Woodard. Uh, a man who has worked, and he said it jokingly, sometimes two, sometimes three jobs, um, to commit to serving people, to pastoring people. And it's been a joy to get to know this friend and, and yeah, call him my brother and to call him my friend. And I know this is a, a difficult moment. But there's a text in First Thessalonians where the Apostle Paul, who's other book in Timothy we were studying this morning he's writing to the Thessalonian church and he just kind of stops and he pours out his heart a little bit and he says this he says for you yourselves know brothers that our coming to you was not in vain it wasn't empty but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi as you know we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. I want to pause right there because I know the story of reconcile and I know the conflict didn't happen at Philippi, but the conflict happened. And for Brandon and Kristen to, to get up like little Mac and knock the dust off, say there's conflict, but you know what? With Christ, there's still good news. That's the gospel. There's good news. And so it didn't stop them from proclaiming with boldness, the good news of God. And then he goes on, he says, our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, the good news, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. So I'll pause again and just comment on the fact that that's what has been the heart of the Woodard family. This wasn't to get a title or praise or accolades. This was because God called them to this task and then he goes on we never came with words of flattery y'all know that right i mean he's not here to make you feel good he's here to tell you the truth about jesus we never came with words of flattery as you know nor with a pretext for greed he's not getting wealthy off of this thing it says god is witness and he goes on we we did not we uh nor did we seek glory from people whether from you or for others though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. 
So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but, our, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. And I'm just going to stop there because that is the testimony of the Woodard family. They're not here to make a name for themselves. In fact, when I would run into Brandon at a conference, he's like he's sometimes confused at all the people that seem to want to hear the story and come around him. Um, he does this because he's he's loved you. He loves people. And he's here to share not just the good news, but man, he's opened up his heart. He's opened up his life. He's opened up his family because you are dear to him. And so my prayer is that they would feel it. In these next couple of weeks and months, uh, Missio Day Church is behind the Woodard family. Whatever you need, we're here for you. We're praying for you. Um, and in many ways, this, this is a di very difficult time. But we love you. And I, I'll just kind of close with, with one question before I pray. I'm curious who the Nicholas Dembu is from this congregation. I'm curious who it is that heard the gospel that was formed, that God is giving him or her a vision right now to spread the word of God throughout Lincoln Heights, throughout Cincinnati, throughout the country, throughout the world. So let's pray to that end. Father, this is a heartbreaking moment. We're not going to deceive ourselves and pretend like it's not. It's a difficult moment. And so we grieve. We grieve the sense of limitations and loss. But we grieve with hope. We grieve with the hope that when a seed dies, it gets buried in the ground and something else grows and comes forth. I pray that not only for Reconcile Church, but for the Woodard family and for all the families who have been connected here. I pray that, Lord, what, what is most important is a right relationship with you. And you've promised you will never leave us. You will never give up on us or forsake us. So we have confidence that wherever we go, you go with us. And so I pray that as we take these next couple of steps, as we spend the next month remembering the stories and the way that you've worked, that you'd also lead us beyond that. You'd give us a vision for what comes next. You'd give us the courage and the boldness to take those next steps. You'd give us the joy again of walking in a right relationship with you. We know on this side of eternity, there's hardship, there's struggle, but with you, there are pleasures forevermore. So we ask for your peace to comfort us, your presence to go before us, behind us, beside us. And we ask that joy would be produced in your people and glory would be produced in your name. So we ask this in the name of Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.